is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello there. Happy Wednesday is going well. It is great to have you along. Today, going to take a look at the impact that all the, the rain and the flooding is having on the grain crops in the eastern states. We'll check in to that part of the country just after half past 12 today. Also, the CSIRO is trying to bring in a live version of foot and mouth disease into Australia as really the next step in improving Australia's biosecurity preparedness. And you'll learn more about that just before news headlines at half past 12 today. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour. And the outgoing WA Agriculture Minister says how we deal with climate change is the number one issue facing the farming sector. Last week, Alana McTiernan announced she'd be leaving politics after 13 years as a minister in various portfolios. Minister, following your announcement, the Shadow Minister for Agriculture, Colin de Grasse, was here on the show just saying that your relationship with the agriculture sector has been challenging because of your driven by a lot of ideology and beliefs that don't always align with what agriculture does or wants to do. So there's been this very strained relationship for some time, he was saying. How would you describe the relationship? Well, I I don't think that agriculture is a monolith. And certainly while there is a a couple of uh, traditional agri-political groups that certainly have um, made it their business to create conflict, I get enormous positive feedback from many, many sectors uh, in the industry. I get invitations to participate in all of their events. So, look, it is true that there have been a few of the representative groups that I who, think, who in particular? Well, it's no secret. WAF and WAF say, you know, every time they criticise me, they see this as an opportunity to increase their membership. Look, they've got to do what they've got to do. One of the things that I do think, and one I think that is sad in in what has happened, is that there's so many organisations now to join, I guess, that a lot of these traditional groups are struggling for membership and they are reliant heavily on sponsorship and sometimes those sponsorships entail perhaps certain interests that may not be the only interest that should be um, being promoted in agriculture. Can you give us an example of that, what you're referring to? Well, I think that some of the opposition to those people that are exploring. And these are many, many farmers across the state that are really wanting to understand soil biology and this in how you enhance biological systems to make oneself less dependent, less dependent, not ignoring them, but less dependent on the traditional chemical inputs. I mean, obviously that is a challenge, perhaps for some companies, although one of the positive things is that we do see um, many of uh, those companies now looking at how they might move into a field that is more consistent and compatible with that practice. But look, my view has never been, I'm not preaching about what farmers should do. What we've done is built the R&D capability and the investment in all of those traditional areas, 
But we've also listened to those farmers that are exploring what some of these alternative systems might be and how that, in fact, may be uh, able to provide farmers with opportunities that are to be more productive and more resilient in the face of climate change and have more capability to reduce their uh, carbon input. So we've said we're going to fund all of those traditional things. We'll put more money into those arrangements with GRDC, our oats partnerships, all of those traditional things. But we're also putting new money and different money into helping those people actually understand those people that are moving in this other direction to back them up and to give farmers the option of looking at how they might uh, sequester carbon and how they might get the benefit of developing soil organic carbon in their soil. Just on that point, Mick Fells, who was president of the grain section with WA Farmers just up until recently, just after the news of your retirement early next year. He said how passionate you are, how uh, you're an effective member of parliament. But he said the state government takes a patronising and arrogant attitude to agriculture and grains industry specifically. And I guess, you know, he's just saying that there was more of a concentration on those areas of your interests rather than the mainstream agriculture. Well, I mean, that just simply is not true. When you look at the investment, the deals that we have engaged in with GRDC, the investment and the work that we did to get increased presence of GRDC, increased involvement of GRDC here, the investment that we've made to in AGEC, which which is celebrating its 10th anniversary, how we have fought hard to keep that, how we fought to keep Intergrain, which was about to be sold off when I became Minister. Intergrain, our premium uh, wheat and now barley and hopefully into the future oat and lupins breeder, that was about to be sold off to Eastern States' interest. So why we do you think that. there is that, that, that oh, message I, look, that always honestly, comes up about I, the relationship? I just think it... it it's it's quite frankly it's bizarre. Just going looking at some of the different industries in particular, starting with the grains industry. There's been a, a long running sort of debate about the future of the state's main grain handler, the CBH Group, over the past sort of decade or so. Corporatise and capture maximum value for farmers, or stay under you know the current cooperative model and hope that competition doesn't kill it off eventually. What's your view on what the owners? of CBH, what the farmers should do? Well, obviously it's their decision, but I think the benefit of being part of a cooperative are huge. And I think that when you look at the um, the short-term gain from being able to get something on, on your balance sheet compared to the long-term gain of actually having really uh, strong uh, logistical chains, uh, logistical right across the supply chain is incredibly important. You look at some of the big cooperatives, farming cooperatives in Europe, for example, and you can see some of these have been in existence for uh, over 100 years and they've added immensely to the uh, ability of those uh, of those farmers to influence um, markets and to control their supply chain. So I think cooperatives, you look 
Whakarau uh, Wamco uh, in Katanning uh, has been an incredibly successful uh, for sheep farmers. Uh, Geraldton's Fishermen's Co-op amazing, produced amazing outcomes for the lobster fishermen of uh, the Geraldton area. This is the Country Hour and in the studio today, the outgoing Agriculture Minister, Alana McTean, and you can be part of the conversation on text 0448 922604. It is 13 past 12. Now, Minister, one of the biggest strains to the relationship has been your stance on the live sheep trade, not advocating for the future of the industry, despite farmers saying that it really underpins the industry here in WA. What does the future of this trade look like to you? We have never put forward a ban on uh, live export, totally, certainly. But you're uh, not out there advocating and saying it's fabulous and it needs to continue. Well, what we've said is that we do understand there is a role for it because we have got um, some limitations. We have got a summer feed gap and we do need to develop um, processing, although I do think processing is developing well and you can see the trajectory over time has been that there has been a decline in live export. So its days are numbered, do you believe? I I just think you have to look at trends that are happening over time. Animal welfare just being one of those and changing community sensibility about it. And uh, that there is also, you know, carbon miles, a whole range of issues that potentially um, will, in the long run, have the potential to make this a less viable part of the industry. But the industry's gone through so much, though. It's gone through, it's been under the microscope, it's had regulation after regulation and update. And we've not been caught, and we have not been calling for it to be stopped. So you're a supporter of the industry then, after all that's been through the new regulation? I think in the long, I think we've got to have, and this has always been my argument, we've got to have an eye on the future. So why don't we start doing some planning for the long term and look at how we might, what are the alternatives in um, bridging that uh, in bridging that summer feed gap and why don't we, and we have been working with various processes to develop processing and we can see more and more box meat and chilled meat exports taking place. Now, well, the, the Premier, Mark McGowan, has said you know, that he well, supports... Well, Belinda, I don't want to spend my entire... I've done no. a lot of things in agriculture and I'm sorry I don't think that the number one issue in agriculture is is live uh, live sheep exports to the Middle East. Can I just ask you this though because the Premier has put his support behind the live sheep trade just to to wrap up this issue. A federally Labor has a plan to phase out the trade. Should Anthony Albanese listen to the Premier Mark McGowan on the future of the live sheep trade? Well, he has uh, he has listened and said that in this term of government that they won't be proceeding with um, uh, they won't be proceeding with any bans of uh, of live export. But you know, you've uh, I, I just say to people, look, it's not the number one issue for agriculture. What is the, the number, number one issue? issue for agriculture? Is how how do we deal with climate change? And the two aspects of of climate change. One is um, that across the state it's going to get hotter and in the southern half of the state it's going to get both hotter and drier. That's going to make farming um, more challenging and it's pretty incredible what farming has been able to achieve notwithstanding 
the uh, drop in rainfall and that's been underpinned not only by the extraordinary hard work and innovation of farmers but also that constant R&D and we just want to make sure that we've got that R&D that is rich and diverse to allow those opportunities. The second challenge in climate change is that farmers are increasingly, like every other industry, are being called to account for their carbon footprint. So we have been investing heavily in researching how, in fact, we can reduce the carbon footprint in farming. And indeed, one of the really exciting things, Belinda, is really the possibility to reverse some of the narrative that is going on about livestock rearing in particular being a climate negative and say, no, we actually think there's evidence emerging that if we get the grazing of animals right, that there is this enormous potential for us to, in fact, sequester carbon in the soil where we have grazing animals. And in fact, that again, done right, that we can um, produce animals that are carbon negative. We need to really get a much more sophisticated understanding about how carbon emissions work and equating an animal, a grazing animal, to a coal-fired power station is completely wrong. One is digging up carbon out of the atmosphere and burning it, and the other is part of a complex biogenic methane cycle which has the potential not only to be self-sustaining, but if we do this right, if we get the emissions part right, if we get the right feedstock, the right genetics, and that's work that we're doing with sheep in our tanning station, so dealing with how we reduce those emissions from the animals and how we maximise, on the other hand, the way that animals can fertilise the soil to maximise its carbon retention, then we actually have seriously the potential to, in fact, in, have livestock rearing become part of the way in which we can deal with carbon, carbon emissions. On the Country Hour, it is 19 past 12 on the ABC, right across WA. Agriculture Minister Alana McTiernan here this afternoon as she prepares to leave politics early next year. Uh, Minister, Labor is dominant in state politics but doesn't have its roots in the country. So there's a view that Labor doesn't care about what happens beyond the Darling Scarp. Looking forward, what's your advice to Mark McGowan and the new Agriculture Minister about how to approach this relationship with ag? Look, honestly, I do think that this is a a National Party myth. I mean, even before the landslide of the last election, even before the landslide of the last election, we had the most members of any party. We had the most members um, from regional Western Australia. So there's no work to be done to try and get closer at at all? I just, I just, I do think, Belinda. I do think we've got to look at the facts first. You know, you framed the question 
in a way um, that fun- I think is fundamentally inaccurate. You've framed the question uh, as if that we don't have members and representation and we have always had powerful representation outside the metropolitan area. And we've got, you know, members in the Kimberley, the Pilbara, Geraldton, the Wheatbelt and uh, into Collie and uh, down to Albany. So we have But you don't huge... acknowledge that attitude at all, that, that, no, that no, feeling? Belinda, no, Belinda, I, I want you to get... I want us, first of all, to get the facts right. And then, OK, so then... So that's in regional Western Australia. You can certainly see the voting at the last state and last federal election, very big swings even in rural Western Australia, in towns like Meriden, in towns like Catanning to Labor. So I think let's just get that facts right. But it is important that we have a positive relationship with farmers. And uh, and I think we, and I have spent uh, a lot of my time, as the Premier will tell you, advocating for investment in agriculture, pointing out uh, that after the resource sector, agriculture is uh, the second biggest sector. Who's the person for that job then, the new... Agriculture Minister well, to replace you. Well, that is the that I know, but you must have your the, preference. That is the decision for the Premier, and uh, I mean, obviously, it would be completely inappropriate uh, <laughs> for me to uh, to speculate on that. All right. Well, Jackie Jarvis is at the top of the list in the the rumour mill in agricultural circles. I'm, what do you I'm, think of her I'm, capability? I'm not. I'm not getting into that. I think uh, Belinda, as you would be aware, that would be a massively inappropriate thing uh, for me to do. What, would would she make a good agriculture minister though? Just as someone I'm, I, in the look, party? seriously, I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm not going to speculate other than to say that I think we've got uh, an enormously capable team. We have got not many have um, agricultural so experience though. Do we they? have got an enormously capable. Uh, you know, interestingly, one of the things that uh, many farmers have said to me is that they prefer having someone that actually doesn't come from a farming background because they tend to find bias towards a particular sector, if you do. Now, I'm not saying that 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 is true. We've seen great um, uh, agricultural ministers like Kim Chance, for example. But I know that what I have done to rebuild the capability of government in this sector to support the extraordinary work that farms do. Farming is the most fascinating area. What does drive me is that I know how hard farmers work and I know the risk-taking, the risk that is inherent in farming and, you know, I really appreciate, you know, to be working with people that are working so hard is something that um, really motivates me to see, you know, the challenges of farming are so significant, the reward's massive, but the challenge is significant. And, uh, you know, my I saw my job as how best can I support those and support those that are looking over the horizon as well as doing all of the conventional stuff, having a view to what might be coming at us in terms of market sensibility, in terms of uh, geopolitics, and looking, and climate change obviously, and positioning the industry well to meet those potential hazards that are coming at us. And actually, where possible, 
turning things that might be a challenge indeed into an opportunity. Well, thank you for coming into the studio and uh, thank you also over the years because you've always made yourself available to the program and it's been great to be able to call on you and uh, talk about the issues that are affecting the sort of um, subject matter that we talk about here on The Country Hour. Well, thank you, Belinda. And I, and I have to say that The Country Hour is an extraordinary program and it, it seems to be that one little jewel in the crown of radio where um, radio is still um, incredibly, uh, incredibly relevant and important. So, you know, to you and Richard, you do a fantastic job. Thank you very much, Agriculture Minister Alana McTiernan who announced just last week that she's going to be calling it quits on politics come early next year. Quite a lot of texts coming through too. 0448 A couple of quick ones just here. JP in Arthur River says, Thank goodness Alana is the first public figure I've heard who actually understands the role of livestock in the carbon cycle. And this from Brendan in Narrambeen. If the bulldust that keeps coming out of Alana McTiernan's mouth could be used as a replacement for imported fertiliser, we would be carbon neutral in no time. 0448 922 604 26 past 12. You're with Belinda Varischetti on The Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. An update from the newsroom is not far away. Just before that, the CSIRO is trying to bring a live version of foot and mouth disease into Australia. The government research agency explained why at a recent public hearing. And as Megan Hughes reports, it's all part of the CSIRO's scientific approach to improving Australia's biosecurity preparedness. The Australian Centre for Disease Preparedness is a high-security lab in Geelong run by the CSIRO for diagnostics and research into exotic animal diseases. They've been at the front line of the fight to keep lumpy skin disease and foot and mouth disease out of Australia. Senior Principal Research Scientist Dr Vulna Fussler is involved in the work to create an mRNA vaccine for the diseases. She explained to the Senate Committee why they would need to import live virus. testing for the FMD mRNA vaccine will be done yet ACDP but it will not involve any live virus so we will be looking at the serological responses um, against that vaccine and Senator maybe if you don't mind me just adding that mRNA is one platform of um, vaccine development Um, there are other platforms that we could potentially work on as well And a big limitation for us is the fact that even if we work on platforms and we design something new, um, the difficulty in doing the full range of testing that you would need to do is limited by the fact that we don't have access to the live virus. So we will have to go elsewhere if we want to test the, the vaccine. And the ultimate ultimate test for a vaccine is to to challenge the animals and see that they are indeed protected. And that is the step that we can't do. We have set the example now with um, bringing in lumpy skin disease virus. The hope is that we will be able to bring in some other related viruses to lumpy skin, which is the goat pox and sheep pox viruses, and then ultimately get permission to bring in foot and mouth disease. Um, but it has to go through um, a lot of channels to be able to, um, to get that process going. According to the Federal Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry, no import permit application has been made. 
bringing in a live virus increases the risk of an outbreak in Australia. FMD in particular is a highly infectious disease with a range of potential transmissions. Dr Chris Parker from DAV explains what would need to happen if an import permit was sought. Currently the importation of foot and mouth disease virus is prohibited without an import permit issued under the Biosecurity Act. My understanding is is it need a permit under a Victorian Act as well, the Livestock Disease Control Act. But obviously before uh, we would issue an import permit, I would anticipate a very similar process to what went on with the importation of live LSD virus into the country would go on. And that would be an assessment of the ACDP facilities to ensure that they meet the absolute highest, most current standards that are around for the importation of and the holding of such a, uh, um, such a virus. Um, I would remind you that there are places in the world where there has been escapes from the facilities. I'm not suggesting that that would occur from ACDP, but of course we would have to ensure that facilities were absolutely top-notch before we'd even contemplate doing something like this. There would likely, as there are with LSD, a whole range of conditions on that import permit around the purity, around the way it's kept, about what can be done with it, all those sorts of things. And I would be simply speculating at this time as to what conditions it would come under. But I would just reiterate, there is no proposal at the moment to import FMD virus into Australia. And I certainly, as the area who would be doing the risk assessment, am not aware of anything in that, in, in that realm. Given the volatile nature of trade relationships, importing live virus could have an impact. Nicola Hinder, Acting Deputy Secretary of the Agricultural Trade Group within DAF, says it would need to be approached in a careful and considered way. We would either need to predicate that with a very large communication targeted strategy and campaign to our trading partners to actually explain the basis upon which we were importing the virus. Now, be that for scientific technical assessment purposes, be it for preventative nature, that really wouldn't matter. There will be some trading partners that would automatically jump to the immediate assumption that because Australia has imported the virus, we effectively have the virus and so therefore we're looking for the vaccine. And so sometimes those are the much harder um, perceptions to be able to counteract by communication. Nicola Hinder, Acting Deputy Secretary of the Agricultural Trade Group within the Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry. 29 to 1 and Herlin Corps is in the studio. What is making the headlines? Good afternoon, Belinda. Making news today, a family is demanding answers after a 13-year-old boy was attacked by a police dog over the weekend. Police were called to Bentley and St James on Sunday night amid reports of homes and cars being broken into and found an adult man and three juveniles. Among the group was 13-year-old Jaden Abraham, who was bitten by a police dog and received injuries to his face, neck and arm. The WA Police Union says it's hopeful the state government can present officers with a similar pay deal to the one provided to nurses. The union is at the end of a month-long campaign of industrial action and has given the government until Friday to present a better offer. And a security expert believes a bomb attack in Poland will lead to increased military support for Ukraine. At least two people died after missiles landed near the Ukrainian border in Poland and Russia denies any involvement. U.S. President 
Joe Biden says early information suggests it's unlikely that the missile was fired from Russia. More news is up at one. Thank you so much, Helen. 28 to 1. More of your comments on the interview you've just heard with Alana McTinnon, the outgoing Agriculture Minister. Jocelyn says, Alana McTinnon, you will always be a city-centric daughter of hardcore Labor unionist. All your Labor colleagues will always look at farmers as a bunch of backward, uneducated country hicks. Peter says Labor MPs have a ton of work to improve their standing. They represent the Labor Party in the electorate. They do not represent the electorate in Parliament, require the very rarely gifted permission to vote with their conscience and their excommunicado if they dared across the floor. Keen to see Alana go completely, says Peter. And Tony in Denmark says Alana has given many environmentally aware people some hope that in time it will be viable, even attractive, to treat with respect our farmland along with the natural environment. The current fraudulent carbon credit system will eventually be replaced with a genuine plan to protect public and private native forest and rangelands without the need to set them ablaze to gain carbon credit, as is the current policy. The text zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Shortly, heading east to check those crops that have been sitting in water for some time now. First, it is off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Joey Rawson, what is the story around the southwest land division today? Yeah, so we've got an interesting day, Belinda. We've got a, a trough that's uh, just moving off the west coast and starting to move into the ag areas. So um, we have the potential for some thunderstorms to fire up on that trough this afternoon. Um, There's already some clouds starting to develop, so the first signs of those thunderstorms. So through areas like the Central Wheat Bell and the Great Southern, um, we've got that potential and they're going to be quite high-based. So um, there is the risk of thunderstorms and lightning and as far as rainfall goes, um, we're looking at about 0 to 10 millimetres, Belinda. So some places are not going to get anything, but if you're um, unlucky or lucky enough, depending on if you want rain or not, um, you may potentially get up to 10 millimetres under a thunderstorm. And then as you push uh, further to the southwest, um, we do have a front that's going to move um, across the southwest. So um, looking at falls around 5 to 15 millimetres you know, through to midnight tonight, And then um, tomorrow um, we have uh, just more showers through the southwest land division. It's going to be mostly confined to the lower west and southwest and south coast. So as far as rainfall getting inland, we're not expecting much to get through the ag areas. But along the south coast, um, we're looking at maybe 5 to 15 millimetres. And along the lower west coast, uh, around that sort of 5 to 10 millimetre mark. Then Friday we have this cold blast again moves across the southwest of the state and temperatures are going to plummet everywhere. Albany is going to be around 14 degrees on Friday and, and it's going to bring quite a showery environment to most of the southwest land division and also some thunderstorms. So um, the showers will come through, they'll be quite heavy, but they'll be moving through quite quickly. And then on a Saturday, we have a high pressure ridge starting to push across the south of the state. So the showers will start contracting to the south coast, um, looking at maybe 5 to 10 millimetres along the south coast, but not much inland, and a little bit of shower activity along the west coast, south, say, somewhere like Durian Bay. And then as we get to Sunday and Monday, um, that high pressure system certainly starts dominating and conditions across most of the southwest land division will start um, being 
less precipitation or, or no rain apart from along the south coast, Belinda. And even some of that rain getting into some parts of northern WA. Can we take a look at the north and the east? What's going on? Yeah, so there's like a low pressure system uh, basically over the Kimberley at the moment. So on the eastern side of that low pressure system, it's quite active as far as thunderstorms go. Uh, They're starting to develop right now. And yesterday we had some falls around that 50 to 60 millimetre mark. Um, So we're expecting those storms to develop again in the eastern parts of the Kimberley and potentially producing some pretty decent falls. Again, 50 to 60 millimetres is not out of the question. And there's also the risk through the far southeastern parts of the Kimberley of some damaging winds. So Halls Creek may be in that area. So uh, yeah, check out the warnings that uh, potentially will be coming out this afternoon. And we've also got a Um, cloud band that stretches through the eastern parts of the Pilbara into the interior. So there's been some rain out of that and the odd thunderstorm and that's going to continue today and then start pushing kind of northeast um, on a Thursday and then basically off to the Kimberley by Friday. So um, a little bit of activity certainly going on up north as well as down south. Sure is. And the warnings this afternoon, what have you got? So just hot off the press, we're going to have a a warning, a fire weather warning for the northern goldfields for tomorrow. And we've got strong wind warnings for the Gascoyne and Geraldton coast and also along the entire south coast for strong winds for this afternoon. Great. Thank you for going through all those details. Appreciate it, Joey. And it's 22 to 1, Richard Hudson here. Now he's going to take a look at the rainfall figures for you in just a moment. But firstly, there's a, a bushfire watch and act, Richard. Yeah, a few notices to do with some bushfires. Uh, watch and act is now in place for an area of the central Kimberley. So this is on the Gibb River Road between Imanji and Silent Grove. Imanji's a small Aboriginal community about 220 k's east of Derby. So there is a threat to the MG community and the APT campground as the fire is now approaching the Gibb River Road. It's burning in an east-southeasterly direction, so if you're planning on heading up the Gibb River Road, please avoid that area. Unfortunately, there's minimal radio coverage in that area, even for the ABC, so we won't be doing um, monotonous um, warnings about that one. But if you're on your way and you're in radio contact, then that you know the story. Also, just a quick one for a fire in the 2J area. There's now a bushfire all clear for parts of Dumbarton and northern parts of Hotties Well. That's in the Shire of 2J, so that's good news. But, um, yeah, just a little bit of rain around. Again, most of it falling in the Kimberley in the last 24 hours. Bedford Downs Airstrip, 14. Flora Valley, 13. Gibb River, 21. That'd be nice. Lansdowne, 10. Nicholson, 22. Siddons Creek, 9. Warman, 40. And then in the Pilbara, a little bit as well. De Grey, 8. Marble Bar, 20. Port Hedland Airport, 9. Telfer and Yarry also recorded 11. But there was no rain at all for the entire Southwest Land Division. Uh, but... There certainly has been a fair bit of round in the more southern parts of Western Australia in the last few weeks and even months. And farmers near Western Australia's south coast have actually been conducting their own trials to see if easily accessible wheat and barley varieties can be sown really late in the season during a wet and soggy year like we've had this year. So they're hoping these trials will be beneficial for future years that are similar. Michelle Handley is head of SEPWA, which is the Southeast Premium Wheat Growers Association. 
And she says, yeah, hopefully these trials will prove beneficial for the growers in those areas. So this season has been a wet season for um, you know a lot of Western Australia, and it has meant, particularly in the high rainfall zone, either um, paddocks weren't trafficable for um, the traditional seeding window, or the, the paddocks were seeded and then um, there was too much water, they got too waterlogged, um, and um, the autumn sown crops were then um, not viable. And so we were looking for a replacement, a way to um, try and salvage something out of what was a very difficult start to the season. Yeah. So what have you sown and, and in so what sort of conditions? So we've gone for three species of barley. We've gone for Maximus, Rosalind and Planet. And then we've gone for two species of wheat. We've gone for Vixen and Scepter. And we've also included in two nutrition packages. So we've gone a lower nitrogen uh, package and a, um, a high nitrogen package. We've done the, the nitrogen applying it all at once, all at, at um, up front at seeding time um, with the expectation that if you're seeding late, you're not going to be wanting to come back and look at a top-up nitrogen. You're probably just going to want to do it once at seeding. We went for those varieties because we deliberately chose things that growers were likely to have on hand. So in these circumstances, you can't pre-plan for a terrible start. You can, you can do a bit of crystal ball gazing from the uh, from the climate predictions, but or the weather prediction apps. But you don't fully know what you're going to get, and so it's unlikely that growers will have varieties specifically tailored to late ser- um, late seeding timings. So we've gone for varieties that the growers will have around in the port zone and then we're trying to have a look and see how plastic are these varieties, how late can we go with seeding them, can we still get a profitable return uh, out of these kind of circumstances. Yeah, and so how late exactly is late? So the first seeding timing was actually right at the end of August, right at the very end, um, and then we've gone through, um, through September. Gosh, that is yeah. very late. It is late. Um, now, the the varieties are bolting, that it's growing like nobody's business. Um, Esperance, the rain has continued to fall, so we've had a very soft spring. Um, and so, you know, we've got varieties in with warm temperatures, long photo periods, so long day lengths and definitely no limitation on moisture. And so these, uh, these varieties have just been um, maturing really rapidly. Have they flowered now? So last week, my understanding was one of the barley varieties was at booting already. What I would say is that's part of what we're tracking. We're, we're tracking how quickly the species mature. So we are interested in yield and grain quality, but we're also interested in how quickly do the plants get through um, their um, growing stages as well, their life cycle stages. Yeah, because late sowing means late harvest. Have you got an idea of when these trials will come off? I'm unclear on that because we're having such a wet harvest. So what we had originally envisaged is kind of out of the window a bit for Esperance. So we had really heavy falls last weekend or the weekend before, sorry, and we've had heavy falls at the start of this week. Um, And so at the moment, 
these paddocks are still waterlogged, which I find extraordinary to be to sort of be here in November talking about waterlogged paddocks. But that is the situation at the moment. We've got harvest equipment being bogged at the moment. Ideally, what do you hope that your members are going to get from this work uh, looking at late-sown cereals? We're hoping that we can give them some data behind um, decision-making in these circumstances. So we don't get these circumstances very often, but they do happen. At the moment, we don't, because we don't deliberately plan for these types of seasons because they don't happen very often, we just don't have the data there available for people. And so we're really trying to help empower them. And they've got this terrible start to the season can they still retrieve something profitable from the conditions that they find themselves in? Chief Executive Officer of SEPWA, Michelle Handley, speaking to Lucinda Jose about some trials they're doing at the moment, seeding easily accessible barley and wheat varieties as late as September, just to see how they go when the ground is all soggy as it has been this year. Quarter to one on the Country Hour and the big East Coast grain handler, Grain Corp, has reported a record profit for the last financial year, but there's certainly trouble ahead in New South Wales as the rain continues to fall and flood damage increases. The New South Wales Farmers Association has surveyed its members and over two-thirds are experiencing flooding for their second year in a row and many are just still struggling to recover from the long drought years. David Clawton reports on what's looking like a disastrous cropping season for many growers in New South Wales. The floods in New South Wales have now impacted on a large part of the cropping area. Gavin Toms is a mixed farmer in the central west where the flooding around Forbes has been massive. His parents' house, which has been well above previous flood levels, was inundated this week. Despite the challenges facing him and many farmers in the district, he thinks he may still get some kind of a crop off. Amazingly, there is some fantastic crops that will be able to be harvested if it dries out. But... um it just seems to keep raining. Like we had the longest dry spell up until this last event for a while and things were drying out nicely. But yeah, uh, <laughs> and even then people were getting machinery bogged. So in my personal case, I didn't manage to get a lot of crop in. Uh, luckily, I have got some oats and barley on some uh, sandy country, which should dry out enough to harvest it. It mightn't make top quality. I don't think anyone around here will scathe uh, through without you know, a downgrade in the quality of their grain. The New South Wales Farmers Association surveyed its members to find out the extent of the damage. Xavier Martin told Christy Reading the impact will be significant. For the individual and uh, the cumulative impact, it's uh, really set to be enormous. It's not just one valley and it's not just one part of the valley, it's right across the state. And uh, to see this rolling impact going on for a second season, as evidenced from our survey, it's really resulting in uh, you know the havoc in the paddocks and the roads continuing. Xavier, more than three quarters of respondents to this survey said that they had planted less than half of their usual winter crop this season due to the wet weather. I mean, there's so many facets to that statistic, isn't there, from the investment in communities, but also the the crops and, and the yields as well? Oh, that's right. And look, it's a missed opportunity and a really important uh, aspect of it is that uh, if we think back over recent years, farmers lost considerable 
equity through the drought years and the mice plague. And so whilst we had one Goldilocks year, if you like, in 2020 for most valleys uh, and made a profit and started to repay some of those debts, certainly 21 and 22 are turning into, for many, another really big loss year. That's not the case for GrainCorp, the biggest grain handler on the East Coast. They released their results for the 2022 financial year this morning and Managing Director Robert Spurway says margins are up and earnings have doubled. It is a record result for GrainCorp with outstanding performance and $703 million in EBITDA. We've benefited from the second consecutive bumper crop on the East Coast of Australia We've delivered strong supply chain performance and demonstrated resilience in a year of many challenges for others. In short, we have made the most of the opportunities that have been there and the strong demand for Australian grain around the world. We've seen record oilseed and food volumes and we're seeing growth in our agri-energy area, particularly the used cooking oil part of the business. And that is delivering significant value for shareholders. Dividends of $121 million in total in the 22 year, and that includes a final dividend declared today in total of $0.30 cents per share. It's in addition to the $50 million share buyback that we completed in July, and all the same leaves us with a very strong balance sheet with core cash of $177 million. While Abares is forecasting another bigger-than-average crop at 27 million tonnes, the outlook for the next financial year is more challenging for the grain handler. I think everyone's aware that, ironically, as good as that weather has been for the crop, it's also created some devastating flooding, and that's impacted uh, some regions and delayed harvest by several weeks. We do expect the impact of that flooding to impact on both yield and quality in parts of East Coast Australia, and we're certainly seeing a higher level of feed grade receivals. Despite the flooding, we've already received over 1.1 million tonnes into our network and our year-to-date exports are already 600,000 tonnes. The supply chain is continuing to operate. Meanwhile, Gavin Toms is still in the thick of the flooding. He's treating his sheep today for fly strike and dealing with the clean-up. But at some point, he'll have to figure out how to harvest this crop. The roads are either closed or full of potholes it's uh it's going to be an enormous task getting the grain to the the subterminals etc once this harvest is done and dusted who knows what the next one would look like there's plenty of moisture in the ground but getting onto paddocks to prepare country and so may well be difficult as the long la nina and wet season drags on David Clawton summarising the very wet conditions that so many New South Wales grain growers are experiencing this season. Nine minutes to one, uh, you just heard a few people talking about machines getting bogged and it does sound like a lot of Western Australian farmers might be faced with that problem this harvest and for some it might be a new experience. Ben White works for the Kandinan Group that does a lot of independent research on all sorts of things relating to agriculture. He says instead of being reactive, farmers can do a few things to prepare for the possibility of getting big, heavy harvesting machines bogged. 
it's a lot easier to get in underneath the machine on hard, dry ground than it is once it's in a bog. So people might want to think about getting under the machine and having a good look around at where there might be some recovery points. It's pretty rare that there'll be a recovery point on the rear of the machine. So normally what we'd uh, recommend is going for the front axle and obviously recovering the machine, pulling it backwards from the front axle. Unfortunately, people have tried attaching things to the back axle and it can stretch machines, it can cause damage. Uh, and in a lot of cases, um, there's just no uh, attachment point at the rear of the machine to fit one of these recovery straps. So always from the front axle and pulling it backwards. And that might mean that we need to fit some axle straps uh, and or a harness or a bridle uh, up the front that can actually uh, attach uh, that front axle. And you might want to put that in place pre-harvest or, or at least pre-bogging because uh, if there are some wet patches in the paddock and you expect that you might get into trouble, that's one thing to definitely make sure that uh, you've got ready to roll. It's a fairly quick transition too from rolling along to plop, you stop. <laughs> it does happen pretty quickly. It does. And look, and it might... You know, typically happens when you've got a, a box full of grain. So mm-hmm. what we'll tend to do is try and lighten the load as much as we can. So backing the chaser right in, uh, you may need to trick the machine into thinking that the uh, auger's out of the saddle. It might be uh, fiddling with a sensor uh, or just popping it out of the saddle so that you can outload some grain out of the tank. That might mean that you need to tether it so it doesn't swing all the way across. But there are a few things you can do to sort of put yourself in the best possible position to recover that machine. Self-recovery is the, the best way before uh, attaching it to something, but if you can, but where you can't by all means you know you might need to attach uh, a machine to to recover it and that uh, typically will involve using a recovery strap in combination with that harness that I mentioned before. Just on that harness are they difficult to fit are they much of a a problem? I'd suggest that anyone who's looking to get a harness probably does a a dry run does a pre-fit to make sure that it is the right size and and uh, they are all available in different lengths so you want to make sure that you know once it's in that un- or under tension that it's not going to damage anything there's you got drive shafts and and whatnot that, m- that make their way out behind that uh, front axle out to the drive wheels so there are a few things to check we often think about getting bogged to get out the bog chain but you keep talking about um straps ben there's a point of difference there there is don't go for chains that's the underlying message in all of this chains just simply don't have the the strength that we need and in a lot of cases uh under tension if they fail they can become a projectile they can cause injury and they have caused death so please don't use chains look for the the recovery straps they're incredibly strong for their weight so if we look at the equivalent uh, strength uh chain uh to to a strap uh, we're talking about a difference of uh 25 kilograms for, for a, a 10 meter strap and we're talking about a chain that's 25 kilograms per meter to the equivalent uh, working load limit so use the synthetic gear it's a lot lot safer a lot stronger yes it might cost a little bit of money but goodness me if you're bogged and you need to get out then that's the gear to go for bit easier than lugging around a massive heavy chain too. <laughs> oh, ex- exactly, Joe. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And as I say, you know, there's dangers in that. And I, look, I should add that from a synthetic uh, gear perspective, you know, avoid D shackles as well wherever you can. Um, there are soft shackles available. So a soft D, as they, they sometimes refer to them as, have incredibly high uh, working load limits. Joe, there, there is, you know, a video that Josh and I uh, put together um, that's online that people can go and they can go to the Condition Group website and get, download it for free and have a look at it. It goes into a lot of detail about how those straps fit on and, um, you know, people are welcome to go and, and have a look at that. Um, Grain Growers helped us put it together and, and um, I think it's about 15 minutes in total, but it does go into a lot of detail as to how the straps work and, and uh, hopefully gives people a, a few visuals as to how they need to connect those. Ben White from the Condinen Group with Joe Prendergast. Five to one.
Hello, I'm Annie Guest. Join me for The World Today. Poland calls an urgent security meeting after Russian missiles reportedly hit its territory. We take you to flood-devastated Yagawa, where homes have been swept off their foundations and down streets. What's the future for this town? And Beijing and Canberra are talking at the highest level again. So how quickly can diplomatic and trade ties be repaired? Join us on The World Today. Four minutes to one. Off to the markets now. And 6,815 sheep and lambs sold this morning at the Katanning sale yards. So a very similar sized yarding to last week's. Tracy Kilner has been taking some notes on all of the prices. Tracy, can you run through those details? Numbers were down marginally for an average quality yarding. Quality lambs sold to higher demand, topping at $159, while the restocker and feeder buyers pushed values up for the better frame store lines. Mutton eased with heavyweight ewes topping at $115 to ease $25 on last sale. The lightweight lambs made from $30 to $80. Heavier weights under 18 kilo carcass weight sold from $80 to $111. Trade lambs returned $113 to $138 and the heavy lambs sold up to $159 a head. The store ewes eased selling from $20 to $62. Medium weight ewes made from $36 to $90 and the heavy ewes sold to $115 with a full fleece. The light and medium Weight weathers sold from $20 to $82. Heavyweights returned $60 to $90. They were back $25 on last week. A large yarding of mature rams sold from $10 to $50. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you very much for that, Tracy. And just before the news, in the last three weeks, you've heard three world shearing records have been broken right here in WA. Mike Henderson is a shearing contractor who was a referee at all three record-breaking events and says they've been great for the whole industry. The reason they're all close together and in a very close proximity as well is that the sheep are at this time of the year that they were attempting raw when they shear best. The, the first one was uh, Cohen Black beating his brother's record from 20 years ago, which was actually set in one of my wool sheds. He was sharing for me at the time. So that was really great because it was a family affair, you know, the brother bettering the older brothers and, you know, the, the whole family was there. It was quite moving. Um, Cohen's a very accomplished shearer and, uh, you know, he had a bit of adversity during the day, but he got there quite comfortably. So that was the first one. Um, the second one was uh, three guys having a go, two brothers and a cousin, that was a really nice family affair. There was a lot of family there, and it was real nice, you know. The third one, on which had just occurred on Sunday the 13th, was Floyd Neal. He's a shearing contractor from Boyabrook, really accomplished shearer as well. His was probably the, the one that went down to the wire a bit. He was actually behind the required tally at lunchtime, but he was remarkable after lunch, actually. He sure incredibly well, and... Um, got back ahead of the ledger and managed to beat it by three. So every day was a bit different, yeah, but quite satisfied that they all achieved the, what they set out to do. How hard is it to break a shearing world record, like the three that we've seen <laughs> the last few weeks? I've never never gone there myself personally, but uh, extremely difficult. There's been quite a bit of stuff done, actually, studies on the amount of energy and whatever that's burned up during the day. It's quite remarkable, actually. It's, it's like running a couple of marathons. I mean, in the past, there's been guys attempt records where they've just about had to carry them out, you know, at the end of the day, and it's really hurt them. They'll all be sore after what they've done, but the three that we saw 
I thought they all pulled up pretty good. It's been incredible, hasn't it? An incredible run over the last few weeks. Mike Henderson, a shearing contractor from Dongara, speaking to Sophie Johnson about his observations as a referee at all three of those world shearing record-breaking events. Great to talk to you today. Thanks for all the texts. It's time for the news. One o'clock.